make your way back to your seats. May the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, rest on you this morning. It's great to pass that peace to all of us. For those of you who are new here at Veritas, guests with us, we welcome you richly, warmly. You uh, should have received a bulletin that looks like this. In the bulletin, you will see a contact card. If you could just fill that out and uh, uh, just make it easy, give it to me after the service. I'll make sure that it gets to the leaders who take care of that. And it's just our way of registering your visit, and it's our way of following up in hopefully a helpful and loving way. Today we're going to be in the Bible, surprise, surprise, but a lot of the Bible. And so if you did not bring your Bible or if you do not have a Bible, there's a gift for you. It's this Bible that's white and it's uh, in the, um, the benches at the, the inside part. Please grab one and turn to 566. And we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 11, excuse me, 21 through 31. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, the Apostle Paul does something epic. He takes approximately 23 chapters of the Old Testament and condenses it into 11 verses. And so this is going to be a difficult text to preach and perhaps a difficult text to listen to and enter into. And so you're going to have to have your Bibles. So if you don't have one, please grab the white one. If, um, if they're all gone, which I don't think they will be, uh, look on to someone. Because we're going to be going back into the Old Testament and gaining ascendancy and traction to the New Testament. And hopefully all of this will make sense to you at the end. And so, if we have our Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. I'll wait till you have that dialed up or turned to, and then you can just smile at me if you're there. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. It's starting to pop. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and stand, and we'll be in Galatians chapter 4. Verses 21 through 31, let's pay attention with reverence to God's holy word that's his voice by the Spirit to us this morning. Verse 21 reads, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But... The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one 
who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to come to you. We are desperate for your voice, so incline our ears to your word. Open our eyes, illumine our mind that we can see the invisible realities of what we just read. May we not merely spectate, but move into this storyline and participate in a way that will truly transform our minds, that will truly transform our lives, that will truly transform Veritas, that will truly transform East Dayton. For the sake of your great reputation, we lay this plea before you in Christ's name and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Like I said, this morning's message is difficult to preach and it might be difficult to understand. And this difficulty comes, I would say, in, in two directions. On the one hand, it might be difficult to understand because this is called biblical theology. This is going to be interpreted allegorically. And so you might not be used to that type of genre or type of, of writing. And the Apostle Paul is going way, way back into Genesis 12 and moving his readership up into the 8th century B.C. with Isaiah. And then he moves it all the way up into the 1st century and talks to churches like this. And then the Spirit uses His Word in a way that in the 21st century in Dayton, we start hearing afresh God's Word. So that part might be difficult. So the first thing I want to answer with this message is, what does this mean? So you have to stay with me. I will work very hard with clarity and vision as you work very hard at hearing and understanding. So keep praying as I preach, keep praying as you're hearing, and together by God's grace we'll come away with meaning. The second difficulty perhaps is some of you are, are more attuned to biblical theology, you kind of know how it works from Genesis to Revelation. It's this big epic meta-narrative storyline and it's saying one message, just one grand message. So you've kind of been taught a little bit and and, and uh, brought along in this big storyline. But then you come away going, well, so what? How does it apply to me, to our church, to our families, to our city groups, to our neighborhoods? And so the second challenge is not only what does it mean, but so what? How does it apply to me? So meaning and application are slightly difficult with biblical theology, but together, by God's aid, we're going to move into a storyline and see if we can get meaning and application through these 11 verses. So, picture with me how the Apostle Paul writes this message to 
the churches and how God uses this message for this morning, for Veritas, for guests, for attenders, for covenant members. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings. How many have seen the Lord of the Rings? Okay, keep your hands up if you understand the Lord of the Rings. Keep your hands up if you understand that big point. I'm going to talk to you. What's your name? Josh. Please, please talk to me afterwards. This is, this is awesome because he understands, he appreciates, and he applies it to his, his life, and that's, that's really cool. So picture with me, we're going to the movie theater, and we're going to watch The Lord of the Rings, okay? We're excited. We don't quite understand the storyline, but we're all going to get together, and we go into the movie theater. Now, what do we find in the movie theater? We find a place in which we are seated in very soft, large chairs or seats. And these large, soft chairs are to diminish distractions, right? And then we are to diminish noise in this room. And right before us, the only thing we can see is this massive silver screen. And now it happens. The lights start going down. And now we're in pitch blackness. No sound. And then the screen opens up. And what happens here is a movie room is transformed into a mother's womb. And we are midwifed into a brand new world. That's how movie works on us, right? That is to say, we first start spectating... And now we're so drawn into the movie that we're participating. Our hearts pound in accordance with what we're seeing. Fear at times, cheer at times, uncertainty. Then we move into clarity. And now we're participating in a brand new world. We were in darkness and we were drawn into this brand new light of this world. And if we get in there, now we start participating And then when it's over, we are caught in the point of this epic. And we move out into this other world. With that in our imagination, thrumming, this is where I'm going to live the rest of my life. So it is, in a sense, with Galatians chapter 4, verses 11 through, um, excuse me, 21 through 31. The way allegory works on our hearts is that writers of the Bible look back on other writers in the past and they start seeing patterns, they start seeing similarities, repeats, and they start understanding that these patterns are developing into a a template or a paradigm something that they now start seeing in a brand new way as fulfilled in Christ. So previous authors are writing with an aim towards the fulfillment. They are historic figures, historic places, real life situations, but God writing this whole history, this whole epic, is is designing these people and these places to point the reader forward in an escalating fashion of meaning 
so that it gets bigger and better and bigger and better until Christ comes upon the scene and all of this Old Testament is fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. That's called typology or allegory, as we're going to read. So to stay on the rails as we start moving into this, just be asking the question, when we're looking at something in Genesis, when we're looking at something in Isaiah, ask yourself the question, what is this typical of? This is typical of a thing that God does, and it's typical of a thing that happens to God's people. Okay? You put those two together and you have typology. So, typically speaking, what is the thing God does? You start reading the Old Testament and you start seeing it. And what typically happens to God's people? And that typological understanding grows and grows until you get to the New Testament. And then there is a fruition or a fullness or a completion. It's in Christ and all of God's people in Christ are experiencing something that Christ has purchased on the cross and has displayed for his people to grow in and multiply. I know it's a lot. But that's preliminary as we now move into Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Paul is going to give a message to the churches. And in essence, it's this. God brings life out of death. And this true life, this vitality, this vim and vigor is the true church existing on promise and not human achievement. That's the idea. That's the storyline. If it's too long for us right now, just shrink it down to those few words. God brings life out of death. And you look at the storyline of the Bible, and there it is, all over the place. He brings salvation out of judgment. He brings life out of death. And he goes on and on and on until the ultimate where he brings life out of a grave and brings forth life to a bunch of dead people like us. So let's take a look at how he does that. He does it in three kind of ways or steps or stages. First, he displays the picture. That's why I got this movie idea here. So we're seated, the lights are down, and camera's on, and now Paul in verses 21 through 23 is displaying a picture. And then as we get closer into that picture, he now, in verses 24 through 27, de develops this principle in this picture. Okay, And then as we're caught in this picture, he will end it in verse 29 through 28 through 30, right around there, with point of this picture. So displaying the picture, developing the principle, and then declaring the point will be kind of the flow for this morning. And we haven't even started. So let's move into verses 21 through 23. And Paul here is communicating God brings life out of death first by displaying the picture. Now, he does this in Genesis through two women. So, everyone have their Bibles? 
We're going to enter into the storyline now, and I want you to pay close attention to the story as it unfolds. Perhaps you can see us on a journey through 11 chapters, and there's six scenic points that we'll get out, and we'll look at something, and then we'll get back in, and we'll keep moving from Genesis 12 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll begin to view this epic storyline with the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you're thinking about Genesis, you might even be going back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28 with Adam and Eve and blessing and multiplying and filling the earth with image bearers of the radiance of God's glory. All through this dark world, there's pockets of light and life that are popping and populating throughout this whole world. And now we see in Abraham that in Abraham, somehow, some way, the whole world, all the families, don't think nuclear family per se, but, but clans or, or little societies or something, these pockets will be blessed by the Lord and will multiply throughout the whole earth. That went to Abraham, and that's known as the Abrahamic covenant, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's blessings that will radiate back to him the radiance of his worth. The type of thing that God does and the type of thing that happens to God's people is starting to be seen in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, let's get back in the car and let's move through. And the next scenic point, we'll see it in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 15 of Genesis, verses 1 and 2, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now remember, he's already given him this promise that just snaps his synapse. He cannot quite understand that promise. And he says, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But, anytime you come across the word but like this, you know you're right at that hinge, and, it, and the conflict is starting to develop in the storyline. He says, but, Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. This promise is going to be fulfilled in this seed or this offspring that's going to be going through the whole Old Testament. And Abraham's saying, you have not given me anything. He's starting to waver in doubt over the precious promise. And the Lord gives him a command. Don't fear, trust me, for your reward is going to be great. 
jump back in the car. Let's move through this storyline and jump out to the next scenic point, which is chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And we read, Now Sarai, that's his wife, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. If you're accustomed to highlighting or underlining in your Bibles, this one is kind of a big one, so you highlight that one. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Echoes of Genesis 3. Eve's voice kind of thing. He listened and went that direction. This is showing us that Sarah is starting to be done with this promise that we saw in in Genesis chapter 12. She is at the end of this thing called walk by faith, trusting in, and now she starts planning and conniving what we are going to call plan B. She's waited a long time. She's childless and she still hears this. You will give Abraham a child and through the child all the families of the earth will be blessed. And she's starting to say, I'm getting pretty old. This is looking bizarre to me. This is not going to happen. Therefore, She takes matters into her own hands through human achievement. She's going to bring forth plan B. Abram goes, oh, I guess that's a pretty good idea. And he goes off with Hagar, and they get a son whose name is Ishmael. And now, here it is, plan B. Perhaps God will work through His promise plus human achievement that will end in blessings for us and for the families of the entire world. And the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. Okay, so now we need to get back into the car and start moving through this storyline again and jump out at another scenic point that's going to make sense, hopefully, of this story unfolding for us. And that's in chapter 17. Verses 1 through 6. Are we ready? When Abram was 99 years old. That's pretty old. I was with a man the other day who was 102. And I was in his hospital room. And I kid you not, I was thinking about this morning. And he was sleeping and I was praying for him. But I was just looking at him going, You look like Abram. How would a promise work through you? Hopefully I didn't verbalize that, but I'm thinking in my heart, here is 99-year-old man. How old is Ishmael right now? If you drop back to the previous verse, you'll see that he is 13, 13 years old. Hitting puberty, we're starting to think, hey, there's a little bit of traction to plan B. Perhaps now he will meet Mary and have a son and through the son and it goes on and on and now there is fulfillment in this incredible promise. 
Abram was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. He generally will start with a self-disclosure of power in the midst of impotence. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may, here's the word, multiply you greatly. Now we're going to start listening to Abraham's heart. Abram fell on his face. (laughs) And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now, Yahweh, the God of all creation and redemption, is challenging his man here and saying, I am God Almighty. What's impossible to man is not impossible with me, for all things are possible with God. Even this 99-year-old man. And so he's speaking afresh the word of covenant, the word of promise into his life. And now drop down to 15 through 19 of chapter 17, and we read these words. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, which means princess. That shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, laughed, and listened to his heart talk here. He said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Always remember, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And we hear his heart, and out of his lips, he hurls these words. Oh, here is Ishmael. Bless, plan, be. Please, I'm a hundred. My wife is 90. Please, this ain't going to work. And then you hear this thunderous, helpful word that some of us hate to hear from God, but he has our best interest at heart. He says, no, I'm not going to bless plan B. No, but, and then he unfolds once again the glorious reality of his promise. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring and for his offspring after him. It's not 
plan B. It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac, who is laughter, joy, celebration. The story doesn't stop there, though, because if you go a little bit further, you go into verse 21. Excuse me. That's a little bit later. Now we see Yahweh confronting Abraham and saying, there will be no change in my plan because it must look bizarre and not able to complete before I will get glory. So now's the time, 190. This is going to require supernatural intervention, right? And so let's get in the car, quickly go up to verse or chapter 21, and we'll end this tour through 10 or so chapters of Genesis. Starting up in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. And here's one to circle. As he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, circle, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, circle, at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called his name, called the name of his son who was born to him, um, whom Sarah bore him, circle, Isaac, which is that laughter. And Abraham did a few things to him and so on and so forth. Now drop down to eight. The child grew, was weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she bore to Abraham, laughing, mocking, derision, persecuting. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. That completes our tour of this epic storyline that Paul picks up in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. There is no such plan except plan A, which is God's. And when it's impossible for man, it's not for God. For all things are possible with God. And there's a type of thing that God does and a type of thing that happens to God's people that's typological, that goes through this progeny or these generations. And we can summarize it like this. God brings life out of death. Barrenness. Inability, no way, Jose kind of reality. And he enters into darkness, barrenness, banishment, exile, hopelessness, and out from the darkness comes light. A baby boy through whom the lineage goes on and on until... Now drop back with me into Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 and following. And now Paul is going to start developing a principle out of this. He says in verse 24, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, 
One is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But, ah, the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. And so on and so on. Where Paul takes the reader now is in the 8th century B.C. with Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. If you want to take 15 minutes today and get a better sense of this storyline, write down Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. Those three chapters, he's taking the audience here and he's plopping them into this bigger piece, a text. Isaiah 53 says what? Remember that one? Where the, where the servant is slaughtered and dies, and out from the grave comes progeny, children, that he washed them clean and justifies them freely, and they're his children. Who is that guy? And then 54, oh, break forth, you who are barren. It's starting to point to not just a person like Sarah, but now the nation called Israel. And then in 55, in chapter 55 of Isaiah, it's the great invitation that goes out. Oh, you who are thirsty, come and drink from me, and I will transform your barrenness into like a garden, like Eden, where there's much fruit. Very strange and very apropos to Galatians chapter 5 and 6. Next week we're getting there. I hope you all come back for a fruitful discussion of the fruit of the Spirit. A little bit of pun there. but And so he says in Isaiah, there is going to be a woman now who's representing a whole nation. And she's going off into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And she's going to be exiled. She's going to be barren. She's going to look at herself and say, where are the promises? I don't see promises. I see unpromising circumstances. I don't see this fruitful, prosperous, happy people groups all over the nation, all over the world. And he says, start singing, because though you don't see it now, it's coming in eight centuries. It's coming. It's coming. And so now Paul brings his readers up to the first century, and now he starts applying it. He starts applying it in a very unique way. He looks at the churches in southern Galatia who are going back under the law, back under Christ plus human achievement through rites and regulations and rules and rituals, and you mix that and mush that into Christ and it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be plan B. And we're going to get the blessing. And he says, that is legalism. I've rescued you up and out of that. I have fulfilled all the law. And now you come to me only for the 
fulfillment of this massive epic that has started in Genesis 1 and it ends in me, says Jesus. And so he develops this principle by drawing his people into this and saying, now it's two cities. I know it's hard. I pulled out my hair trying to understand this message. It's very difficult. But he goes from two women to two cities. And they're present Jerusalem and Jerusalem above. Present Jerusalem in the first century was populated by Pharisees, Judaizers, proselytes, disciples of Judaizers who say Christ plus circumcision or other rituals of Mosaic covenant, so forth, equal all that you need for salvation. You will have assurance if you follow me and do all these regulations. Present Jerusalem populated by those people? Mm -hmm. And now Jerusalem from above that's populated by this progeny of turning from their sins and trusting the Christ who has fulfilled all these promises. And now in Him, we are fruitful. We are alive. In Him, we have come out of death to life. And the way we have come out of barrenness into life is the ultimate barren one that has been brought back to life. Now we start seeing barren in a whole different way. It's not merely a womb, it's a tomb. And there's nothing alive in a tomb, really, until something happened. Three days after Jesus was brutally murdered and put into a tomb, light pierced the darkness. And vitality started caressing a corpse. And Jesus Christ came back to life. And up out of the dark tomb came life. Genuine, powerful, authentic, eternal life. And all those who put their trust and hope in Him, the Bible says, come out of their death and are transferred into His light and life. That doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem possible. But the gospel says, with man it is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible to Him. Out of the tomb comes this life. God brings life out of death. In Christ and those who place their hope and trust in Him for the accomplishment of all our sins. Paid for them. Washed us. Closed clothed us with His righteousness, placed His Holy Spirit in us. Now we're called sons and not slaves, and we're walking by faith and not by sight. All of this is starting to get condensed into Paul's letter in Galatians 4. If you're still in the story, we've got to come out because of time and because we have to go home. If we leave this storyline as something like a movie theater, 
we've missed the point altogether. We stay in the storyline. This becomes our reality. And this is the lens through which we start looking at dark, dank, depressed, despondent, death of Dayton, of our neighborhoods, maybe of someone in your family, maybe a colleague, a co-worker. It's death. It's barren. And we've got to go away with three points to this storyline. The first one is found in verse 24, I think it is. Excuse me, 27. And I just simply say, rejoice, O church. Rejoice. You look in the mirror and your joy goes away. You look at your bank account. You look at your progress report. You look at your performance rating. You look at your advancement in holiness and maturity. You see besetting sins still on you, and you think you're barren, and you can't rejoice. I say by faith with this word of God, rejoice, O church. We look at our budget. We look at we don't own property. We don't see converts popping this way and that way and every way and populating Veritas. We see our surroundings dilapidated. (laughs) Where's the joy in that? Oh, beloved, you're missing the storyline. Rejoice, O barren one, you who have borne no children. Keep your eyes and affections upon the fruitful one, the one out of the grave and alive. In him there is much joy and much fruitfulness, much progeny and much pleasure right in Christ. Let us never waver in doubt over the precious and magnificent promise of God. As Abraham said, he was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God and being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. So number one, joy in Jesus. Look away from your circumstances. Look away from unpromising plans and whatnot. Don't try a plan B. Just look to Christ and rest in him. Number two, remove all legalism. If you've been here for a few months, you've been through Galatians, you hear this over and over again because the Spirit of the living God works through a man called Paul to put in paper, on paper, this Word of God because we are susceptible to legalism. And he's going to press it on us. So look at places in your own life where you say, Jesus is not enough. I'm going to augment or add to Jesus so that I will have a successful walk in Christianity. Look at legalism in your life and remove it. That's what this passage is saying. As a result of living in this world, this Narnia-like world. Also, we at Veritas must look at a church and remove all legalism. Now, here's where I think it gets really, really close to first century. When you hear, cast out the slave woman and her son, referring to whom? Judaizers and their disciples. 
So now, if there's ever anyone who comes in and starts purporting a, a message that's not the gospel, leaders will come to that person and help that person reorient and reconsider and come back to Christ in a brand new way. And if this person gets recalcitrant and hard and stubborn and starts moving more into the body, we have to move closer and closer and pray and try to persuade. And if there is a no, this is life called legalism, then there is this thing called redemptive removal. Some of you might think of it as excommunication or church discipline. Cast out means we remove from the membership those who would pollute the body with this kind of teaching and activity because we want to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. We want to preserve the purity of God's people, the local church. We've got to protect her. We've got to provide for her. And this passage is saying, remove all legalism. Point number two. And lastly, remember your true identity. You see how he summarizes it in the last verse? So, and now he's going to remind us of our true identity. I read chapter 5, verse 1, because it kind of looks like it connects Pastor Garrison, I think, will be preaching that passage, or someone's going to do it next week, and, and you'll hear it again. But he is saying, remember your true identity. It's not just that we have one father. Judaizers said we are from Abraham, right? And we're true sons. It's whose mother do you have? It's from Sarah, not from Hagar. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. And the Judaizers went, oh, I guess I don't know what's going on. We are the true children of God found in the true Isaac, the true Israel, the one that came out of barrenness into life. And so don't forget, remember true identity. We're sons and daughters of the king through the firstborn from the dead who is the son of God, our savior, Jesus Christ. Allow this epic to transform your mind, to involve in your imagination so that now you have a lens through which you can look at life and not get despondent, but grow in faith, hope, and love as a result of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for preserving 11 verses down through history so that we could read them and enter into them and think, ponder. Your word says, think upon these things and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. I pray for these precious people that you will help them ponder and participate in the glorious realities of Christ. Help us now as we open our eyes and get ready for the Lord's table, that we will understand symbolism, perhaps like never before, and take of Christ and participate in renewed ways in Jesus Christ and be refreshed today. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.